Revelation chapter 2, we're going to read verse 1 through verse 7. Pray the Lord would lead in this. We'll talk a little bit about love today. Seems to be something that's been on my heart, weaving its way through different messages, whether it's our study in Romans or looking at other places. You can't go far in the Scriptures without seeing love. The love of God, the love of God reflected in us, the love that a church ought to have for one another, for the world around us. So it does us good to study it. Romans, or excuse me, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. The Bible says, Under the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou cannot bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which, are, which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and I will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I thank you for this day, for this time we come to the hearing of your word. Lord, I pray that, I pray that the hearing of your word would produce faith in our hearts, and that we might ever draw near to you, Lord. So please give me the strength to say what is needed. Help us to have open hearts and open ears as we seek to love you more, Lord. I just thank you again for all that you've done. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So love is a pretty powerful thing, right? We have this amazing capability within our human hearts to feel emotions uh, like that, to that depth whether it be for our spouse, whether it be for our children, or even things we like, we have this amazing capability within us to love. And I believe that is given by God. It is a mark of His creatorship on us, an evidence of His work in us. And love brings so much to us. To to feel love and to feel loved brings us joy, doesn't it? deep joy within our hearts. It brings us peace, this wholeness um, to, to both feel and to give love and to receive love. It's love that overlooks faults. It's love that, that binds two people together. It's really quite amazing. And when a marriage is built on love, it's a successful marriage, right? When a family is built on love, it's a healthy, thriving family. Any relationship, really, that is built on love is healthy and vibrant and right. Including, and first and foremost, our relationship with God, right? Because He loves us with a love really beyond our comprehension. We sing a song that says that. What love? A love beyond all human comprehension. 
But yet that, that massive, amazing, wonderful love that He loves us with, we have a piece of that in our own hearts that we can actually feel and reciprocate back to Him. As we read in a scripture reading this morning, we love God because He first loved us. And that love that He has for us and that love that we give back to God brings joy and peace and wholeness and a thriving relationship with God. In fact, it's that love that sets all other things in the right place in our life. But can love fail? God's love does it. But our love can, right? Whether it's a marriage, whether it's a family, whether it's a relationship, and first and foremost, whether it's our love for God, we can fail at times. When it should not fail. And God has something to say about that this morning. The section before us that we'll be walking just a bit through is the letters to the churches in Revelation. There's seven of them here spanning from chapter 2 to chapter 3. It's really a powerful section of Scripture. It's really an important section of Scripture. Because you have from the mouth of Jesus letters to His churches. Now some will say that these different churches, uh, these different letters to these different churches represent different ages or different periods. And this first letter here to Ephesus would Uh, represent the early church, like in the book of Acts and and what is recorded in the New Testament and all going all the way through to the end of chapter 3 to the church of Laodicea would be the modern church. Now, I can see applications of that, but I don't take that view. I think these are seven literal letters to seven literal churches. Each one had their own issues, good issues or things they needed to work on. And that's just like the rest of the New Testament, isn't it? The church at Rome was going through something different than the church at Corinth. And Paul, as he wrote those letters, was addressing different issues. And like the rest of the New Testament, we can learn something from these seven different letters, can't we? Something here applies to us. It's written for our instruction and our learning, and we do well to pay attention. This is an important section, not only because of the content, but because of the author. (laughs) You ever get a letter or a card in the mail you were kind of surprised by? Like, oh, wow, look who wrote. Look who who, uh, took time to write a card or a letter. Wow, that's really special. I get those every once in a while. Kind of takes you off guard. Wow, this is nice. This is special. Well, the early church letters... The letter to the Corinthians, the letter to Timothy, the letter to the Romans, all of that, they were handwritten letters to those churches. And I imagine it would be pretty exciting for them to open, oh, look, Paul wrote us. Or look, James or Peter wrote us. This is special. We're going to read it, which is what it was meant for. Well, I don't want to diminish those other letters in any way. Because all of Scripture is given by inspiration. People spoke as they were moved by God. But these letters here... These are really special. (laughs) They're straight from Jesus, His mouth, Himself. They would have been written by John, but hey, Jesus told John to write this down. That's pretty special. It's attention-grabbing. Imagine getting that letter, a letter written straight from Jesus. 
That'd be pretty special, wouldn't it? Well, by the way, you did. You ought to read it. It says some wonderful things to you. Can you imagine someone writes you a letter, a card, pouring their heart out, and they say, hey, did you read my letter? No, it was too boring. I want a Facebook. Oh, it puts me to sleep. There's so much in there. I just I don't understand it. You have a letter from God himself for your learning, for your instruction, pouring his heart out towards you. Maybe if you loved him enough, you'd read it. Just saying. I don't think they threw these away. I don't think they went out to watch the Olympics, do other things, whatever was going on in their time. I think they read it. We do good to read what God has written to us. Let's see what he has to say. He writes this to Ephesus, a pretty important church. Other than the first church, the original 12, and what goes on in the book of Acts, most of most in Scripture is recorded of them. I mean, you've got Apollos, Aquila, Priscilla, Paul, Acts chapter 18 and chapter 19, all involved in the founding, the instituting, the organizing of this church. Paul spends a couple years here. He writes the letter to the church. The letters to Timothy are most likely letters to their pastor. And we have this written to them. Verse 1, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write. Now it's actually addressed to the angel. Do we have like a specific faith Baptist angel? Maybe. That'd be pretty cool. One angel who guards over us and watches us, over us. and It's not out of the realm of possibility. The word means messenger, and I'm more inclined to believe this is speaking of the pastor. Now, I've been called a lot of things. I've never been called an angel. But that's the term that it uses here, and I believe he's writing to the pastor and, by extension, the church here. Under the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. What on earth is he talking about? That's a weird way to start the letter. Well, he's giving specific parts of a vision of himself. So go back one chapter and we'll see what he's talking about. I want you to see what John writes down that he, he sees here in chapter 1 verse 12. John writing here says, I turned to see the voice. Well, let's back up one verse. He heard a voice saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt around the chest with a golden girdle. And his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun as it shines in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me and said, Fear not, 
I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. And the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. This is a vision of Christ. John sees Him in His glory. And he says his, his whole countenance is shining like the sun. He sees Christ in His glory. And he's given symbolic visions, seven stars that are held in His right hand. Well, Jesus Himself tells, tells us, those seven stars are the seven angels which I am holding in my hand. And those seven candlesticks that I am walking around, those are the seven churches. Isn't that a good feeling to know the one who writes to us, the one who speaks to us, is the one who holds us in his hand and is the one who is walking among us? That's what the end of verse 1 of chapter 2 means. He that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand and who walketh in the midst of the seven candlesticks. This isn't a mystery to God. He is aware of what is going on. He says he is walking among his churches. And by the way, notice there's seven candlesticks here. Not one huge bonfire. Seven separate entities. Seven separate churches. The church is always local. Always individual bodies and communities. And Jesus is there among his own. Watching, helping, moving. What he is saying here is these are my churches. I hold them in my hand. I am walking among them. These are mine. Jesus is the head of this church, not me. You understand that? Jesus is the head of his church. He is the goal and the focus of all that we do here. Not man, not politics, not anything else, but for the glory of our head and our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how he starts out this letter. I'm here. I'm writing to you. And he has something to say to them. Look at verse 2. I know thy works. <laughs> he knows. Jesus knows what we're doing. The word to know is not just to be informed of. It means to understand. Jesus sees. He understands. He knows. He knows our struggles as a body here. He knows our hopes. He knows our goals as a church. And he, he knows our failings and our inconsistency. He knows all of it. Look what he goes on to say. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. How you cannot bear them which are evil. And you have tried them which say, they are uh, which say they are apostles and are not. And has found them liars. And you have borne and have patience and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. You see, they have some good things going. They were a working church, a busy church. You see what Jesus mentioned? I know your works, I know your labor, and I know your patience. And again in verse 3, I know you've borne, you've had patience, and you've labored, and you've not fainted. They were not an idle church. They were one that was busy. 
even in the face of persecution, when things were getting tough, they were out doing what they should have done. It was becoming heavy and it was becoming laborious. We're just starting to taste that, you know. We don't know really what it's like to labor for the Lord. I think it was Spurgeon who put it in a, a <laughs> in a way that only he can. He said, a lifetime of the modern Christian's labor would not wear out a butterfly. <laughs> it's pretty true. <laughs> we, we, we don't labor. How many has lost a house because they profess to be a Christian? How many people have been chased from town to town with the threat of crucifixion or the threat of being burned at the stake because they profess the name of Christ? Ah, I'll tell you right now, none of us have faced anything near that. Oh, but somebody might make fun of you. That's our labor. Somebody might say no, and we just flop on the ground and, and flail around saying, Oh, woe is me, it's so bad. We know nothing of it. These people were fearing for their lives in a very real Roman persecution which martyred thousands and thousands and thousands of the Lord's people. And Jesus says, You've not fainted. Temperature makes modern Christians faint. <laughs> Whether the sanctuary is too hot or too cold or a little dip in their finances makes modern Christians faint. Not these brethren. These brothers and sisters were laboring. They've borne up under the pressure and they've had patience. So don't get the wrong impression. They're a working church. When the church ought to be, right? We ought to be moving and active doing what the Lord has called us to do. It says they did not tolerate wickedness. Right? You, you, you cannot bear them which are evil. They're taking a stand against sin which would have surrounded them at every turn. Ephesus was the center of pagan worship. The temple of Diana was there and little temples would line the Ephesian way. Listen, I've said it before and I say it again. Cities like Ephesus, cities like Corinth, they make Vegas and New Orleans look like Knott's Berry Farm. These were sin cities. And right there in the middle of them, local churches, doing right what they should have been doing. So they couldn't stand against that which was evil. They were fighting that, doing exactly what Paul had urged them to do in the letter to Ephesians when he says, don't walk like the other Gentiles walk. In fact, he says, have no fellowship with the works of darkness in Ephesians chapter 4 and 5. We'd go there, but we're running short on time. They listened to the instruction as we ought to today. We're not to remain silent against the wickedness of the world. We're not, to, we're not to partake in it. We're not to do the same things. We're to call it out. To reprove those works with the truth of God. Isn't after, after all, isn't that what the light does in darkness? They were a working church. They stood against sin. They stood against false apostles. And just about everyone today says they've got a message from God. God spoke to me and told me this. God told me to do that. We hear it quite often. It sparked some pretty massive movements. And the latest turn now is with issues like social justice and critical race theory. 
pastors are standing up and saying God has spoken to them to take churches down this direction. And this is being taught as truth in some churches. Let me just, let me just say this real quick. God has spoken fully and finally right here in the Word. We want to know what God says? Read your Bible, because it's there. It is perfect, it is complete, it is sufficient. Sixty-six books that do not contradict, but they support and fulfill one another. And if God, through the Holy Spirit, is going to move on us, if He's going to move somebody's heart, He's not going to contradict what He's already said. He's not going to tell us in John 14, 6 that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God but by Jesus and by faith in Him. And He's not going to come out some 2,000 years later and say, well, it's changed. No, He's not going to do that. If a message contradicts what the Bible says, then it is not to be believed. It is false. The church in Ephesus was taking care of business. They were trying those who said they were apostles and found them to be false. As many we could go in, much we could go into here. They were a strong, active, and doctrinally sound church. So what's the problem? Like they're all good, right? Well, they had one problem. It was a major one, and it was a fatal one. See, they were a loveless church. Verse 4. Look at verse 4. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. The English is a little bit muddy here. It makes it sound a little softer than what is written. It reads, should read more like, I'm holding something against you because you left your first love. You've left your first love. What is this? What's he talking about? Well, to be very simply, uh, to put it very simply, the first love, that's loving Jesus, isn't it? What else can it be? <laughs> the central focus of the Bible is Christ. The fulfillment of it all is Christ. It's Jesus. And Jesus is how we first fell in love with God, is it not? That's how we came to have life in Him. It's all about Jesus. Do you remember when you fell in love with Him? Do you remember what it was like the moment that you were saved? The moment you knew your sins were gone and you've been forgiven and that burden was lifted. The guilt is gone. And Do you remember how much you loved Him in that moment? How much you wanted to tell everyone and how much you wanted to learn more about Him and you were ready to do anything He asked. And you wanted everyone around you to experience the same salvation that you did. That pure, true love for Him that captivated every area of your life. That love for Him that consumed you. I think that's the first love He's talking about. And that true love was the foundation for everything, wasn't it? I mean, your whole life changed because of what Jesus did for you. And now you want to be baptized. Now you wanted to 
go to church, and now you wanted to read your Bible, now you wanted to witness, right? All because you fell in love with, with Christ. Yet, for some reason, it fades, doesn't it? And it's not that we stop loving Jesus. It's just the brightness and the newness and the realness of it can fade, and other things can get in the way. We can get busy with life, and hardship can come along, or our hearts can get hard. There's many different reasons, but that love sometimes fades away. And most of the time we pass it off like, well, it's no big deal. I still love God. It's just not like it was. As long as I keep doing what He asked me to do, I'll be fine. As long as I believe what's right and I do what's right, well, then I should be good, right? Well, I think Jesus makes a statement here we need to pay attention to. Because he says to a church that is full of active, doctrinally sound people, you've got a problem, and it's a big one. You fell out of love with me. And I'm not passing it off. I'm holding it against you. You see, though it may sound elementary like a Sunday school subject, our love for Jesus, truly being in love with Him, impacts every other single area of our life. True love for Him does so much for us. If we really love Jesus, it's going to keep our heart in the right place. Because it teaches us just as it did back then that without Him, we're nothing. We're doomed and we're damned. The Bible is clear over and over. It tells us of the love that God has for us. God so loved the world. What? He gave His only begotten Son. Romans chapter 5, the love of God is manifested in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible tells us that over and over that God loves us so much, He came to save us. In fact, as we read this morning, we love Him because He first loved us. You understand, when we truly get that, when that truly sinks into our heart, it doesn't leave room for anything else like self. Selfishness or self-righteousness. I see this is not about me. It never was about me. It's about God who loved me. And it's not about the good that I can do or who I am or what I do, it's all about Him because I'm serving Him for what He's done for me. I deserve nothing but judgment and condemnation. Yet He has reached down to us, saved us by His grace and mercy. We are heaven-bound because of His love. Without that, I have nothing. Ephesians chapter 2, again, we won't go there for time's sake, but he says, You were dead in trespasses and sins. You're walking according to your own lust, serving this world. And there's two little words in verse 4 that change everything. But God, who is rich in mercy, even while we were sinners, He loved us. We have nothing except for God, who loved us. God who reached down to us. God who extended mercy and grace so that we may be forgiven when we did not deserve it. Do you love Him for that? Do you love Him for saving you? 
Or is it just something that, yeah, that happened. Because if you keep that love burning brightly at the forefront of your heart, it's going to keep your heart in the right place. We're going to begin to see, I'm nothing without Him. He is everything. And true love for Jesus will then help us with other people. You see, we all need a Savior, right? Nobody is born righteous. The only righteousness we have is from Him. We're all sinners. We all stumble to some extent. We all need His grace, don't we? Just as much as we did in the start. And taking our eyes off Him can cause us to focus on other things. But yet, didn't Jesus still love us in spite of all of our own faults? And aren't we called with a Christ-like love to love others in spite of their own faults? Realizing, I'm nothing in and of myself. I'm only a sinner saved by grace. Doesn't He work by His love to cleanse us from the sins we confess and works by His grace to change us? And if we focus on how much He loves us and all the work He's still doing in me and in my own heart, I'm going to find that I have more of an attitude of grace with those around me. Whether it's the world around us, whether it's my spouse, whether it's my kids, or whether it's my fellow church members. But it starts by me truly loving Jesus like I should. True love for Jesus will produce action. (laughs) How can we not tell others around us of what He's done for us if we're just truly in love with Him? How can we not tell other people of the forgiveness of sin and eternal life that He wants to give each one? If our love fades and it's still not fresh in our heart, then we'll grow silent. And that love, well... We'll tell other people what our love truly burns about. Whether it's the stock market or some entertainment. We love something. Our, burn, our love burns bright for something. Is it Jesus? Because that's our first love, right? And we'll find that if that's burning in our hearts, we'll be active. We'll do whatever we can for Him. Whatever he asks, because I love him so much. True love keeps him central. We're here because of him. All we do is for him. Not us, not others. All for him. Why? Because we're bound by some sense of duty? Or because we're so righteous and holy and better than everyone else? No. One singular reason for everything that we do. Because he loved us so much, he died to save us. That's why we're here. That's why we're at church. That's why we serve Him. That's why we follow the Scripture. Because He loved us enough to save us. And Jesus is calling this church out here. He says, hey, you left that, you let it go. Even though they were an active church, doing and believing the right things, that did not outweigh the deeper issue. 1 Corinthians 13, he says, I could do all these things. If I do it without love, it's what? Useless. 
The right actions didn't make them right. The fight against false doctrine didn't make them right. The foundation was off. They left the first love and they let it go. And so they were in trouble. So my question is this morning, have you? Have I? Have we drifted away from that and become distracted? What burns within our hearts? Is it tomorrow and the schedule and the meetings or the bonuses that are coming or the vacation coming up? Is that what burns in our hearts and what we think about through the day and what we plan for throughout the week and all that? Is that what has captivated our hearts? Or, was it, or is it what it should have been and what it was when we were first saved? Jesus. Do you remember what it was like those weeks following? Walking around feeling lighter than air and so happy and so full of life and wanting to tell everybody, I'm going to heaven. I'm not guilty anymore. This is great. Your first love. Perhaps you need to listen to the warning as we move to a close because it's pretty steep. Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you are fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place except you repent. He said, remember from where you are fallen You've fallen. You are up here. You're fallen. You're doing these doctrinal works. You're believing the right things, doing the right things, standing against sin. (coughs) But because you left your first love, you've fallen. It is never, ever less intellectual. It is never less doctrinal to talk about simply loving Jesus. You understand? And anybody who looks down on speaking about the cross, anybody who looks down on the simple fact of saying, I love Jesus because He saved me, Anybody who looks down on that is not listening to the Scripture and is a fool. He said, you've fallen because you've left your first love. Our primary focus is to love Him because He loved us. You understand that? We love Him right, everything else will take place. We love Jesus, we'll love His truth. We love Jesus, we'll love His people. We'll love Jesus, we'll do what He asks us to do. Does that make sense? But at first and foremost, we must love Him with what? All of your heart, soul, your mind, your strength. With everything. He says, you've fallen. This is not some Sunday school kid message. Our Lord says right here, remember from where you have fallen. You stopped loving me and He says, you need to repent. You need to repent. That doesn't mean they get saved again. That means they're doing one thing, they stop, they turn away, and they go back to doing what they should. You need to repent, make a turn, and do the first works. Get back to loving me. Fall in love with me again. A healthy marriage keeps that central, right? Love. That intense love and attraction you had at first. Remember when you were dating? You met that other person and they were all you could think about? You can't wait to see them. You can't wait to do something for them, right? And 
dates were a big thing and you try to get flowers or teddy bears or whatever. Well, that love is never supposed to go away. It's supposed to deepen and strengthen, right? And quite often, it doesn't. The marriage gets distracted and you get distanced and what the couples do is rekindle it, right? You're supposed to rekindle it. So you go back out on dates and you get the flowers and you hold hands. You do all those things you did at the first. Because it rekindles what is supposed to be the foundation of the marriage and that's love. Beloved, maybe you need to do that today with Jesus. Maybe you need to get back into falling in love with Him. Let some other things go. Turn some other things off. Spend time with Him. Remember what He's done for you. Remember what it was like, how vibrant that love was, how consuming it was, how thankful you were, and get back to doing those first works. I pray you wouldn't ignore this nor pass this off as some weak feel-good sermon. This is serious. How serious? Look at the end of verse 5. Do the first works or else I'll come unto you quickly. I will remove the candlestick out of his place except you repent. You understand what he is saying? To put it simply, the candlestick is a picture of the Holy Spirit's presence within a church. We are the temple of God here. The Holy Spirit lives within us. The candlestick is a, pres- is a symbol of His presence. He's saying, if you don't get back to doing this, I'll pull my spirit. You will cease to be mine. I will not walk among you and move among you as I did before. Instead of knowing your works and your labor and your patience, I'll say, I don't know who you are, and you'll just be a bunch of people that gather together and do something useless on a Sunday. Yeah, it's that serious. So perhaps we need to look within our own hearts and see where we're at. The local church is made up of individual members. And all that we bring here as we are in covenant with each other and committed to each other, we bring that, that health to the church, right? And if our hearts are strong and in love with Jesus, this church will be strong and in love with Jesus. But if we're failing and we're distracted, that's going to affect the whole, isn't it? We each have to check our own hearts on this. I have to check my heart. In fact, who was the letter addressed to first? The pastor. And I would encourage you to check your own heart. Have you fallen out of love with him? In your own heart, in your own mind, have you maybe begun to leave your first love or have you left it all together? Have you let other things cause it to dim? And now we're just kind of existing in this Christian life, kind of drifting through? Is your heart taken with other things more than Him? Perhaps it's time to repent, beloved. Perhaps it's time for us to get back to that pure and true love for Jesus. I cannot do that for you. I wish I could. 
I wish I had some magic pastor wand that just went, you're good, you're good. I can't. I could barely do that for myself. All I can do is say, look, this is what the Word says. This is what we're supposed to do. This is what I'm trying to do. And you need to try it too. Jesus says, it's really important that you stay in love with me. Yeah, you may do the right things, you may believe the right things, but if you're not in love with Him, all that stuff doesn't have the right foundation. Perhaps we need to just spend some time with all that He's done for us. His grace and His mercy and His love in saving us. Let that take your heart and your life. Fall back in love with Him and the rest will have its place. Have you left your first love this morning? Do you need to fall back in love with Him? I pray you would take a look in your own heart and do that today. Let's bow our heads. Father, I thank You for Your grace and for Your mercy, Lord. Thank You so much for the love that You have for us. For all that You've done for us, Lord, I pray that You would Maybe remove the walls and the calluses and the distractions that have come into our own hearts and help us, help us to have tender hearts again to, to your grace and mercy and love and all that you've done for us. Lord, I pray that you would touch each heart here, that we might fall back in love with you and do the first works as we seek to serve you and to honor you, Lord. Do the work only you can do. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.